0: into mine, though he continued to travel up to our chambers in London at least once a week until he died in his eighty-second year. But he was becoming more and more of a country dweller. He was no man for shooting and fishing, but instead he'd immersed himself in the roles of country magistrate and church warden, governor of this, that, and the other county and parish board, body, and committee. I had been both relieved and pleased when finally he took me into full partnership with himself, after so many years, while at the same time believing the position to be no more than my due, for I had done my fair share of the donkey-work, and borne a good deal of the burden of responsibility for directing the fortunes of the firm with, I felt, inadequate reward, at least in terms of position. So it came about that I was sitting beside Mr. Bentley on a Sunday afternoon, enjoying the view over the high hawthorn hedgerows across the green, drowsy countryside, as he let his pony take the road back, at a gentle pace, to his somewhat ugly and over-imposing manor-house. It was rare for me to sit back and do nothing. In London I lived for my work, apart from some spare time spent in the study and collecting of watercolours. I was then thirty-five, and I had been a widower for the past twelve years. I had no taste at all for social life, and, although in good general health, was prone to occasional nervous illnesses and conditions, as a result of the experiences I will come to relate. Truth to tell, I was growing old well before my time, a sombre, pale-complexioned man with a strained expression, a dull dog. I remarked to Mr. Bentley on the calm and sweetness of the day. "'And after a sideways glance in my direction, he said, "'You should think of getting yourself something in this direction. "'Why not? "'Pretty little cottage. "'Down there, perhaps.' "'And he pointed with his whip "'to where a tiny hamlet was tucked snugly into a bend of the river below, "'white walls basking in the afternoon sunshine. "'Bring yourself out of town some of these Friday afternoons. "'Take to walking. "'Fill yourself up with fresh air and good eggs and cream.' The idea had a charm, but only a distant one, seemingly unrelated to myself, so I merely smiled and breathed in the warm scents of the grasses and the field-flowers, and watched the dust kicked up off the lane by the pony's hooves, and thought no more about it. Until, that is, we reached a stretch of road leading past a long, perfectly proportioned stone house. "'set on a rise above a sweeping view down over the whole river valley, "'and then for miles away to the violet-blue line of hills in the distance. "'At that moment I was seized by something I cannot precisely describe. "'An emotion, a desire? "'No, it was rather more a knowledge, a simple certainty, which gripped me, "'and all so clear and striking that I cried out involuntarily for Mr. Bentley to stop.' and, almost before he had time to do so, climbed out of the pony-trap into the lane and stood on a grassy knoll, gazing first up at the house, so handsome, so utterly right for the position it occupied, a modest house, and yet sure of itself, and then looking across at the country beyond. I had no sense of having been here before, but an absolute conviction that I would come here again, that the house was already mine bound to me invisibly. To one side of it a stream ran between the banks towards the meadow beyond, whence it made its meandering way down to the river. Mr. Bentley was now looking at me curiously from the trap. "'A fine place!' he called. I nodded, but quite unable to impart to him any of my extreme emotions turned my back upon him and walked a few yards up the slope from where I could see the entrance to the old overgrown orchard that lay behind the house, and petered out in long grass and tangled thicket at the far end. Beyond that, I glimpsed the perimeter of some rough-looking open land. The feeling of conviction I have described was still upon me, and I remember that I was alarmed by it, for I had never been an imaginative or fanciful man and certainly not one given to visions of the future. Indeed, since those earlier experiences, I had deliberately avoided all contemplation of any remotely non-material matters, and clung to the prosaic, the visible, and tangible. Nevertheless, I was quite unable to escape the belief, nay, I must call it more, the certain knowledge, that this house was one day to be my own home, that sooner or later, though I had no idea when, I would become the owner of it. When finally I accepted and admitted this to myself, I felt on that instant a profound sense of peace and contentment settle upon me, such as I had not known for very many years. And it was with a light heart that I returned to the pony-trap, where Mr. Bentley was awaiting me more than a little curiously. The overwhelming feeling I had experienced at Monk's Peace remained with me, albeit not at the forefront of my mind, when I left the country that afternoon to return to London. I had told Mr. Bentley that if ever he were to hear that the house was for sale, I should be eager to know of it. Some years later he did so. I contacted the agents that same day, and hours later, without so much as returning to see it again, I had offered for it, and my offer was accepted. A few months prior to this I had met Esme Ainley. Our affection for one another had been increasing steadily, but, cursed as I still was by my indecisive nature in all personal and emotional matters, I had remained silent as to my intentions for the future. I had enough sense to take the news about Monk's peace as a good omen, however, and a week after I formally became the owner of the house, travelled into the country with Esme and proposed marriage to her among the trees of the old orchard. This offer, too, was accepted, and very shortly afterwards we were married and moved at once to Monk's peace. On that day I truly believed that I had at last come out from under the long shadow cast by the events of the past, and saw from his face and felt from the warmth of his handclasp that Mr. Bentley believed it too, and that a burden had been lifted from his own shoulders. He had always blamed himself— at least in part, for what had happened to me. It had, after all, been he who had sent me on that first journey up to Crithin Gifford, and Eel Marsh House, and to the funeral of Mrs. Drablow. But all of that could not have been further from my conscious thought at least, as I stood taking in the night air at the door of my house on that Christmas Eve. For some fourteen years now Monk's Peace had been the happiest of homes. Esme's and mine, and that of her four children by her first marriage, to Captain Ainley. In the early days I had come here only at weekends and holidays, but London life and business began to irk me from the day I bought the place, and I was glad indeed to retire permanently into the country at the earliest opportunity. And now it was to this happy home that my family had once again repaired for Christmas. In a moment I should open the front door and hear the sound of their voices from the drawing-room, unless I was abruptly summoned by my wife, fussing about my catching a chill. Certainly it was very cold and clear at last. The sky was pricked over with stars, and the full moon rimmed with a halo of frost. The dampness and fogs of the past week had stolen away like thieves into the night. The paths and the stone walls of the house gleamed palely, and my breath smoked on the air. Upstairs, in the attic bedrooms— "'Isabel's three young sons, Esme's grandsons, slept, "'with stockings tied to their bedposts. "'There would be no snow for them on the morrow, "'but Christmas Day would at least wear a bright and cheerful countenance. "'There was something in the air that night, "'something, I suppose, remembered from my own childhood, "'together with an infection caught from the little boys that excited me, "'old as I was. "'That my peace of mind was about to be disturbed?' and memories awakened that I had thought forever dead, I had, naturally, no idea. That I should ever again renew my close acquaintance, if only in the course of vivid recollections and dreams, with mortal dread and terror of spirit, would have seemed at that moment impossible. I took one last look at the frosty darkness, sighed contentedly, called to the dogs, and went in. "'anticipating nothing more than a pipe and a glass of good malt whiskey "'beside the crackling fire, in the happy company of my family. "'As I crossed the hall and entered the drawing-room, "'I felt an uprush of well-being, "'of the kind I have experienced regularly during my life at Monk's Peace, "'a sensation that leads on naturally to another of heartfelt thankfulness. "'And indeed I did give thanks.' At the sight of my family ensconced around the huge fire which Oliver was at that moment building to a perilous height and a fierce blaze with the addition of a further great branch of applewood from an old tree we'd felled in the...